It's extraordinary video as complete strangers band together into a human chain to come to the rescue of a family caught in a riptide. The water, when it starts going around, there's nothing that can save you. 80, yes, 80 beachgoers rushed into the water and joined hands when they heard the cries for help. Well, our mom had to go in after me and my brother and the people made a human chain and pulled us out. Some are calling a water rescue over the weekend a true act of heroism. It happened in Panama City Beach. These Gulf waters look fairly calm right now, but that's just how people remember these same waters looking when this beach was in crisis. A dangerous riptide lurked just offshore. And you might remember those news reports about the Good Samaritans who formed a human chain off the coast of Florida to rescue swimmers caught in a rip current. And this is Our American Stories, and we love stories like these. Well, recently, these good Samaritans were reunited with the parents of the family they saved. Roberta Ursray and her husband, Brian, of Panama City, were enjoying a beach day at Panama City Beach when their two sons, Noah and Stephen, got caught in a rip current. All my boys were screaming and crying and begging, you know, for me to get them out. The Ursrays, their mother, at least two other family members, and two strangers who swam out to help Noah and Stephen, all became caught in the riptide as well. Nine people were now in danger of drowning, and the elderly mother was suffering from a heart attack because of the ordeal. Thankfully, Derek and Jessica Simmons were swimming with their family after dinner when they saw the Usrays stranded in the water and called out for strangers on the beach to link arms to reach them in the water. Let's try to get as many people as we can to uh, grab hands, grab wrists. We just kept yelling at the beach, people, we need help. The chain eventually grew to about 40 people. The swimmers were stuck nearly 70 yards away. The rescuers... The chain eventually grew to about 40 people. The swimmers were stuck nearly 70 yards away from the shoreline. The rescuers, whose quick thinking and actions quickly earned them praise, said they were just doing for the Usrays what they would want others to do for them. It was just on a whim. Everything just was real clear, you know. Um, when we got over and, and we, we no, noticed what was going on and, and we were already waist deep in the water, it was, just, it was just clear, get in the water, get them out. But we, I knew just on prior instinct of um, growing up in rivers and lakes, around rivers and lakes, right. that if you're too far out, you've you got to have something to get back in. We didn't have a rope or we didn't have anything, so I, the only thing that could come to my mind was Arm to arm, we, we can make length and we can get out to them. Jessica Simmons swam out to the Earth's Rays and helped bring each stranded swimmer back to the chain, which then pulled each of the stranded swimmers safely to shore. They were performing the chain. They were getting everything together. They were yelling at people. They were yelling that they need two more feet, two more feet to get to these people. While that was going, I had a boogie board, so I swam out there to give it to them to try and keep them afloat enough to so the human chain could actually get to them in time. Derek and Jessica Simmons' mother was also there, and she had this to say. I believe that that's the way we were brought up. You know, if you can help someone in need, you always should help someone in need. And I would want someone to do that for my family. So Mm -hmm. it was very important to me that we all join in and help. Amen. Roberta and Brian Ursray then took the opportunity to thank the Simmons family for saving their lives. Thank you. I mean, y'all were my angels that day. All of y'all, the whole chain, you know, Sean and Tabitha, all of y'all, y'all, y'all have, y'all were my angels that day that, that saved my family. 
And without y'all and God that day, we wouldn't be here. It was amazing to see the entire chain form. They just stopped doing everything they were doing to form, and at that point, it didn't matter who you were, what race you were from, what your background was. They stopped to help save my family. Derek Simmons closes things out with this message that he hopes people can take from this story. We get a lot of bad news. Um, there's a lot of things that go on in, in our universe, in our world, that shows a lot of hate. And I, I just hope that you know, we didn't do this for any limelight. We did it just, we did it because that's what we, we would want somebody to do for our family. And, you know, the, I think the message for me is, is that if you're unsure, you know, of course, I wouldn't want to hear of anybody hurting themselves, but do unto others as you'd want done unto you. So, you know, if you can, if you can help somebody, it doesn't have to save a life, but if you can feed them, feed them. If they're hungry, you know, that's just how we were brought up is that you, you lend a hand to anyone in need that you can't. And that's Derek Simmons, and that's the voice of America, and that's what we love featuring here on this story. No hate, just who Americans really are, almost all of us. And now it's time for Jesse Edwards and Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. By the time we get people to stop using their phones while driving, we'll have self-driving cars allowing us to use our phones while driving. Why do we assume that the zombie apocalypse has to have human zombies? Maybe zombie cows will be a threat to all of humanity. Our ability to swallow down the wrong pipe and almost choke ourselves may be the biggest design flaw of the human body. If you lock a locker, aren't you the locker? When rich people see the 10 things that all wealthy people do in articles, do they think to themselves, yep, that's totally true? Or do they say, damn, I don't do any of that? Before modern science and medicine, people were breathing without really knowing why. When moths die, do they hear a voice telling them to fly towards the light? I would pay someone to follow me around secretly with a camera just to know what I'm like from the third person. Life insurance is basically me making a monetary bet against a company that something bad is going to happen to me. Johnson & Johnson really missed their chance when they didn't use Ozzy Osbourne's No More Tears in their ads. If you get eaten alive by a wild animal, at least you're not going to die alone. They say no news is good news, but how can the news be good if there's no news in the first place? When Buzz Aldrin dies, his ashes could be sent on a probe to Mars so that while he was the second man on the moon, he could be the first on Mars. Knees are just leg elbows, and elbows are arm knees. If there's a low urinal for children, why can't there be a high one for tall people? Shower thoughts. And thanks for that as always, Jesse. And this is Our American Stories. To hear all of Jesse's shower thoughts, well, just go to ouramericannetwork.org. They're wild, they're weird, and we love them. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment, a eulogy, a written statement of some kind about a dear departed loved one, sometimes famous people, sometimes not so famous. This guy that we're about to cover, really famous. Billy Graham. And we moved in on that funeral of his and pulled some of the best stories about his life. We did that at Arnold Palmer's funeral, and it was just terrific. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear that. And Billy Graham had quite a life. He preached to 210 million people in more than 185 countries. Born in 1918. Died in 2018. Most importantly, he insisted on racial integration for his revivals and crusades starting in 1953 and invited MLK Jr. to preach jointly in New York City in 57 because that's what his faith demanded. And according to his staff, more than 3.2 million people responded to the invitation at Billy Graham's crusades to accept Christ as their personal Savior, and that is remarkable. Let's go to the funeral, and let's hear the stories. First up, Sister Jean Graham Ford. Thank you all for being here. And you're here because you're loving. But you don't love him like I do. And you haven't loved him as long as I have. Uh, when the president saw me today, he said, my goodness, your family has good genes. Well, he didn't know that my name was Jean. <laughs> my brother, Billy, my sister, Catherine, my brother, Melvin, and I, Grew up here in this house. We learned hard work. We loved to learn to love the Lord. We learned to pray. We learned to love the scriptures. And that's never left any of us. My other brother and sister have gone on. And I was reminded when I heard that my brother died of the song that the choirs used to sing Heaven came down and filled my soul with glory. On February the 21st, heaven came down and took my brother from me. One day, heaven will come down and take me. And I know what he would want me to say today is heaven is coming again and would like to take you also. Next up, daughter of Virginia, Gigi Graham. I'm the eldest. I tell people that I don't want to be called the oldest or the eldest anymore of the family. I want to be called the one that daddy loved the longest. (laughs) But, um, you know, I read many, many articles. I've seen things on television, the cards that so many have written. And there's so many adjectives that have been given about Daddy, and they're all so wonderful. But you know, I wanted to read something, and I'm going to share. There's a little girl that was born many, many years ago on a faraway country. 
And um, she, I don't believe, had probably ever heard of Charlotte, North Carolina. But she was born many, many years ago, long away, a long time away. But you know, her parents had taught her to pray, even at that early age, for the man that God would prepare for her. And so there was a little boy here in Charlotte milking cows every morning and every afternoon, and he had no idea that there was a little girl praying for him in China. But you know, Mother, many years after that, wrote, uh, a, really wasn't, she was about 13 when she wrote this little poem, and I couldn't think of any adjectives that have been said that could do better than this poem. And I want to share this poem with you that many of you maybe have heard or if you're quoted, but it's worth doing it again. 13-year-old girl remembered, Dear God, I prayed, all unafraid, as we're inclined to do. I do not need a handsome man, but oh God, let him be like you. I do not need one big and strong, or yet so very tall, nor need he be a genius, or wealthy, Lord, at all, but let his head be high, dear God, and let his eye be clear, his shoulders straight, whate'er his state, whate'er his earthly sphere. And oh God, let his face have character and a ruggedness of soul, and let his whole life show, dear God, a singleness of gold. And when he comes, as he will come, with those quiet eyes aglow, I'll understand that he's the man I prayed for long ago. And you know, the Lord answered every single one of those prayers at Mother, and many more. And of course, that little girl, my sisters and my brothers and I called Mama, and the little boy was Daddy and how grateful that God has now brought them back together again for eternity. And next up, daughter Ann Graham Lotz. When I was a girl growing up, mother led us in family devotions every day. She read the Bible and she prayed, and that was that. When daddy was home, he led in family devotions. He read the Bible, but he didn't just read it. My daddy would stop and make a comment, he would ask a question, and we would discuss the scriptures. So my mother taught me by her example to love reading my Bible every day. And my daddy taught me by his example to think about what I was reading. So about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when my mother went to heaven, my daddy started asking me to read him the Bible. And at first it was very intimidating, and then it became such a joy. And there were times when I would sit in front of my daddy, he was hard of hearing, so I would sit in front of him knee to knee, and he would ask me to give him a full 60-minute message. And he never took his eyes off my face. Once in a while he would interrupt me and he would ask a question or we would discuss it. Um, but he loved to hear God's Word. And then as he got weaker, we uh, went from 60 minutes to 5 to 10 minutes. But the pattern was always the same. Whoever was in the house was called to gather around him, and we did that whether he was in the kitchen or if he was in his study or more recently when he was in his bedroom. But the pattern was the same. People would gather around, and I would read a passage of Scripture, but before I did, I would explain to him why I had chosen that particular passage of Scripture. 
we would gather around and I would explain to him why I had chosen that passage of scripture and then I would read the passage to him and I would always end by saying, Daddy, I love you. And what a picture we all had informed. Those of you who are listening, if you could have watched it, she was looking down. The father was in his casket right in front of her. And what an image. The daughter now reading to the father, deceased. And the daughter reading to the father as he got up in age, returning the favor because the father had read all those years to her from their favorite book. And we're going to hear from more family members. And then we're going to hear from people around the world whom Billy Graham went to visit, places where the Bible and Crusades together hadn't come in in a very, very long time. And from places as far away as Seoul, South Korea. And just a bit about Graham and his life. You know, he was a counsel to presidents. By the way, Republican presidents, Democrat presidents, he didn't He didn't play favorites in that way, never endorsed a candidate, stayed away from that space, thank goodness. But what was most remarkable about his life is that Gallup, well, they have a list of most admired men and women in this country, and Billy Graham appeared on that list 60 times since 1955, and that's more than any other individual in the world, and that's just... Well, that's just a piece of the Billy Graham legacy. When we come back, we're going to hear from his son, Ned, the daughter, Ruth, who tells just, well, there wasn't a dry eye in the house when daughter Ruth was finished with her story about her father's mercy, particularly, and his humility. And then again, we'll hear from pastors from Seoul, South Korea, from the Middle East, from around the world, and then last, of course, his son, his son Franklin. Final thoughts. The life of Billy Graham. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our final thought segment, The Life of Billy Graham. Up next, daughter Ruth Graham. I want to thank each one of you for being here today, from those in the very back here in the tent to the very front row. We are blessed and honored that you are here. Thank you. And I have learned this week, as never before, that everybody has a Billy Graham story. And even this week, President Trump told us about his Billy Graham story. As a little boy, his father took him to Yankee Stadium to hear my father preach. And he said, this is a big deal. (laughs) Little did they know that their paths would cross many, many years later. But I have my own Billy Graham story. So I'm going to tell you that one. And I've told it many times, and some of you have maybe heard it many times. But it bears 
repeating because to me it speaks to the essence of who my father was and is. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. I did a lot wrong. The rug was pulled out from under me. My family thought it'd be a good idea for me to move away, to get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live near my older sister and her family and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, you know, they were almost grown. They didn't know what they could, they couldn't tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let us wait to get to know this man. They had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sinful. I married a man, this man, on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father. It was a two-day drive. Questions swirled in my mind. What was I going to say to Daddy? What was I going to say to Mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? You, we, we're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. And let me tell you, you women will understand you don't want to embarrass your father. You really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. And many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me and he said, welcome home. There was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. And you know, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. When we come to God with our sin, our brokenness, our failure, our pain and our hurt, God says, welcome home. And that invitation is open for you. Thank you and God bless you. And next up, son, Ned Graham. I was told we have three minutes to try to sum up the life of my father, Billy Graham. I'm going to take less than three minutes because my siblings took a little more. <laughs> I just want you to know that my father was fat. He was faithful, he was available, and he was teachable. And I want each one of you to remember that. Faithful, available, teachable. May we all be that way. And thank each one of you for coming and giving us this honor and the honor to my father. Thank you. Up next were several pastors with international ministries. Sammy Dogger came up first from the Carantina Alliance Church from Lebanon. I'm Lebanese, and he grew a heck of a gigantic church there. 
ended up planting 22 churches in Syria, the Sudan, and all over the world. And after him, up came Billy Graham's friend, Billy Kim, pastor emeritus of the Suwon Central Baptist Church in Seoul, South Korea. Mr. Graham, on behalf of millions of international Christians around the world, those who have heard you proclaim the gospel message and were touched, challenged, and saved, I join all of them to say thank you. Thank you for your bringing salvation message to our part of the world. Since the news of your homegoing, hundreds of letters and phone calls came to me to bring condolences to your family and friends. Indeed, you have had impact on millions of lives, including kings, presidents, and vice presidents, and common people around the world. Mr. Kim Jong-pil, the former Prime Minister of Republic of Korea, has to say this. The crowd attracted were unprecedented in our history. But more than mere size and scope of the meetings, I am convinced radiated an intensity that amounted to an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which will change the lives of each and every participant and plant the sacred message of scriptures in the hearts of all those who are within the sound of your voice. The fruit of the righteousness is a tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. You have done that all your life in all the world. On personal note, you impact my life far greater than one can imagine. My wife, Trudy, when she was 12 years old, went to the crusade that you had in Grand Rapids, Michigan. After your preaching, when you gave invitation, she gave her heart to Christ and dedicated to become a missionary. She has kept that decision until now. During the Seoul Crusade, my family went every night at the final meeting with estimated 1.1 million people attended. All of our children dedicated their lives to serve the Lord. The church I pastor at that time Attendance was mere 300. Now, after your crusade, there are more than 20,000 members. The rapid growth of the megachurch movement in Korea have started. We have more churches and missionaries than any other country in our region, all because you came to preach the word to our people. Last time, I saw you when Gigi took me, your eyesight and hearing was not too good. Gigi said, Daddy, your favorite Korean preacher is here. <laughs> you said you're kidding. <laughs> I said, Dr. Graham, I'm here to thank you. Then you said, Billy, let's have one more crusade in Korea. To conclude my remarks, you and Mrs. Graham have been a such inspiration and encouragement and your family a wonderful friend in the ministry. Your journey has ended on this earth, but may the Lord give you perfect rest in the presence of our Heavenly Father. You have fought a good fight. You finished the course. You have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for you a crown of righteousness. God bless you all. Thank you.
And that's the beautiful thing about serving and serving as Billy Graham did, a God that didn't see the difference between someone from Korea or an African-American preacher in the American South. It was all the same and all love. Billy Graham, his life story in a way, in these final thoughts. One last segment to come. final thought segment. We very rarely done an hour of final thoughts, but this one, well, it had to be. Up next, Franklin Graham shared a few memories of his father that really displayed the character of the man. You may wonder how I best remember my father. Well, I cannot remember my father without remembering my mother. She loved my father. He loved her. He adored her. She was his soulmate in life. And when she passed away 11 years ago this coming June, it was a big hole in his heart. He missed my mother. He had a big picture of her at the foot of his bed on the wall. And he could lie in bed and look at that picture of my mother. Sometimes I'd come in there to see him and he'd say, Franklin, I miss your mother more today than I've ever missed her in my life. The last few years of my mother's life, my mother was sick in bed and she would lie in bed on her side and my father would come in and he'd sit beside her and the two of them would look at each other, just look at each other, I mean, eye to eye for hours. And if I sat in the room, I felt a little uncomfortable like I was intruding. (laughs) Um, he loved her and she loved him my mother was a part of my father's life at every turn when I think about my father I I can sit quietly and I can still hear his his voice a word of encouragement (laughs) and sometimes a word of caution. There were quite a few of those. I can recall him at home just laughing with our children. He had a great sense of humor. He loved his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all of his family. And I remember we would take walks together along the mountain trails above, above his log home there in Montree. But the Billy Graham that the world saw on television, the Billy Graham that the world saw in the big stadiums, was the same Billy Graham that we saw at home. There weren't two Billy Grahams. He loved his family. He stood by us. He comforted us. He left us an enduring legacy. His uncompromising testimony of God's great love. All of us children came to see the world and our Father in heaven through my Father's eyes. He has often said that someday 
you'll read that Billy Graham is dead. He said, don't you believe one word of it. He said, I'll be more alive than I am now. I'll have just changed addresses, that's all. And changed addresses he did. We wanted to now, just we were doing some investigating and looking for some of the very best and most revealing clips to play you from Billy Graham himself. And here he is in 1988 with Larry King on Larry King's Night Show. And Larry King's sort of a non-believing Jew talking to this evangelical firebrand. And Graham had just written a book about death. King wanted to know why. I would say that two or three of the editors felt that it uh, was not the kind of a book that I ought to be writing. Why'd you write? But I felt that uh, the Lord wanted me to write it because we face death every day. It's the most democratic thing in the whole world. It brings us all to the same level. Everybody's going to die. And as Bernard Shaw says, it's the greatest statistic in the world. One out of every one uh, dies. And C.S. Lewis, uh, the uh, British uh, professor, uh, said that war does not increase death. He said uh, death is total in every generation. Everybody <laughs> that we see walking on the streets, everybody that uh, we see every day, they're all going to be dead. And we all fear it. And we all fear it. And we have a right to it. It's called the last enemy. It's called the great enemy. It's called the king of terrors. So naturally, Larry King asks Billy Graham how he deals with death. Well, since I have received Christ into my heart, uh, the sting of death is gone. Now, for example, uh, last summer, my wife and I were coming back from Europe. We were on a plane, and suddenly there was an explosion. We thought a bomb had gone off, and the dishes went everywhere, and the, uh, the things oxygen. came down. The oxygen mask came down, all that sort of thing, and we never learned what happened. We were told later it was a bomb, and it was on an Air France plane. And... Um, they were having a lot of difficulty at that time. And uh, I didn't uh, feel nervous at that moment. It was too quick. But a little bit later, I began to feel nervous, and I thought to myself, am I afraid to die? And then I thought, uh, again, that it's instinctive to want to live. I mean, that's something God gave us. And if we don't have that sense of self-preservation, we would all die, or we might go out and commit suicide. But I'm not afraid of death. I'm looking forward to death itself, I'm not looking forward to the dying process. And we pivot to a conversation that Billy Graham had with William F. Buckley on his show, Firing Line. Buckley, of course, a Catholic and a conservative, talking with this evangelical pastor about World War II and how so many people had lost their faith because of it. How could a good God, the question, I think, persisted, how could a good God take so many people and allow Auschwitz and Buchenwald to happen. And so for those of you who think there have been crises of faith of late, well, this is something that's happened throughout history. And here is Billy Graham explaining why some chose to doubt God and others, like him, chose to get closer to God. I think that uh, this point is exactly right. I think that uh, many people have been thrown off by the terrible sufferings and the overwhelming problems that have been created in our generation, but this is precisely a fulfillment of what the Bible itself teaches. Because the Bible teaches that our problems originate from the fact that man, since the Garden of Eden, has been in rebellion against God. Now, I personally hold the view that there are beings on other planets, and, uh, but I believe that this is the only planet in rebellion against God. 
And we were created in God's image. We're little gods, as it were, in God's image. But we use this freedom of choice that God gave us to rebel against him. And because of that rebellion, which has been called sin in the Bible, it's a disease of, of the spirit, that this has infected the whole human race and all of the sufferings and troubles of the world actually originate there. Now, there are million symptoms, and you have human nature going wild uh, in its rebellion against God in various times of history. And some of this has been really in the name of the church. And you have uh, the scriptures teaching that there are actually two Christianities. There's the church within the church. There's Christendom. But there's the true believer inside of Christendom uh, who really believes in God and who tries to live the teachings of Christ. And you have your, uh, your men like Francis of Assisi or you have your St. Augustines uh, that come uh, throughout history. And there are thousands in every generation, but they're only a minority. We've never had a period in history where the majority in any country have been true believers in Christ and living Christ because the very essence of a true believer is love. And uh, certainly uh, when so-called uh, Christian Germany uh, allowed to take place what took place, uh, that the true believers in Germany, many of them were ignorant of it, or they, uh, many of them uh, found themselves in a position of protesting like uh, Niemela and some of these people, but they couldn't do anything. They were thrown in prison. And so you do have in history these terrible uh, outcroppings which really goes back to human nature because Cain killed Abel in the Garden of Eden and that was the first act of violence in history. And uh, violence has taken place ever since then. And who can say that what took place on such a massive scale at Buchenwald uh, is now taking place in New York City almost every day where people are murdered in cold blood the same vicious uh, uh, thing in the human heart is there, whether it's on a mass scale where millions were killed or whether it's in the heart of one person where he kills another person. It's, it's the same disease. It's the same disease. It's just a matter of scale. And here's William F. Buckley and Graham following up on that by making a distinction. I think it's been the other way, Mr. Buckley. I don't think there's a corporate... Uh, a reaction against God. I do think there is a reaction today uh, against the church, the organized church, whether it's Protestant or Catholic. I think that uh, people are, are uh, revolting against uh, the church in, to, to some extent. But uh, I do not find any real revolt against the person of Christ. Now, for example, the hippies, where I, I spend quite a bit of time with uh, during the past few years, and their long hair and their beards and their boots, you know, they call them the Jesus boots. And uh, uh, one of my uh, psychiatrist friends who lived at Haight-Nashbury for two years, he's professor at Marquette University, he said that um, he became convinced that they had a, a, a subconscious longing to be like Jesus. They thought of Jesus as a revolutionary. They thought of Jesus as a dropout and he had turned on and tuned in and so forth. And uh, they, they had a strange longing to be like Jesus. I don't, when I stand up and talk about Jesus, or talk about the Bible, or talk about God, I find practically no hostility among any groups in America, but I no, do but find a hostility when I talk about the church. And an interesting distinction 
and an interesting voice, a guy who could, well, spend time with hippies and hate Ashbury. The Woody Allen Show, as you found from our hour we did on, on Billy Graham's life. Ecumenical to the end, open to all, a friend of Muhammad Ali, a friend of Larry King, a friend of presidents, a friend of common men around the world. Final thoughts, Billy Graham's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life, whose voice, you should know. By the early spring of 1966, I had to listen to the seniors in my high school talking about where they were going to college in the fall. From East Coast to West Coast, they would be spreading out, taking another step on their way to success. The winds would be at their backs. For my friends and myself, we could not count ourselves among them. We weren't going anywhere. For us, the winds were in front of us. We would just graduate from being punks to being hoodlums. You know, petty crimes would be moved up to felonies, and for some of us, the only transfer wouldn't be from one college to another. It would be from juvenile hall to the penitentiary. Our lifestyle was just about drugs and alcohol and violence as a form of entertainment. Soon, it, it really would become a way of life. None of us were interested in graduating from high school, let alone go to college. None of us were really interested in working as it interfered with our drinking. But I began to see down the end of this road, and I, I wasn't one I wanted to travel. I sensed I wanted something different. I wanted to see what was beyond the county line. I just didn't want to spend my life confined in a small town and a small area with a small group of people. This was not the way I wanted to go, but I didn't know what to do. I had few options. I could go to work and get an apartment and a new stereo and spend my time drinking beer with my buddies and relive high school days, you know. I could probably marry my girlfriend and be a father by the time I'm 19, get a car. But none of that really appealed to me. I thought about college. I thought that if I had a college education, I'd be able to make something out of my life. But my poor academic performance in high school gave me little opportunity to go to college, certainly not get me an attractive job. And my friends would not be so enthusiastic about my ambition. That was a real difficulty. My friends weren't the kind of people that welcomed statements like, hey, you know, I think I'm going to go register for junior college and go to Portland State and make something out of myself. No, that wouldn't be too smart, as they viewed any attempt to improve oneself as a statement that you somehow thought you were better than they are. Somehow the desire to improve your life becomes an indictment of theirs. Allowing me out of the control of the group was a big problem. I knew about their activities and their history, and I didn't think they were going to support anything I wanted to do. And therefore, my life would remain local forever. And the crushing weight of a small world would eventually squash any spirit that I had. 
Now he's sitting around here. Uh, there were no bars to imprison me, but I was a captive just the same. In a short time, I would just sink deeper and deeper into the sand and eventually be enveloped in darkness. If I discussed this idea with my parents, boy, would they get shocked. They would tell me to get a job, quit kidding myself, I've never displayed any academic ambition, go to work, punch a time clock, get a lunch bucket, go get in the union, marry your high school girlfriend, stay out of trouble, settle down, just get a job. If I went to my school counselors, they'd be even more amused. Education wasn't for someone like me. In their opinion, I wasn't the type. Growing up my whole life, I heard the same complaints and opinions about me that my parents and counselors had. I'd always get asked the same questions when I'd be confronted with authority. What's the matter with you? Why can't you just do what you're told? Why don't you just be like other kids? My only answer back to them was, I don't want to be like other kids. I don't want to do what I'm told all the time. I just thought if I could only get away from all of them, I'd, I'd be okay. I just got to get the hell out of here. Living around them and living in a small town was like wearing shoes that were too tight or a collar that was too tight. I felt I was always chafing under control. Other people's directions for me, other people's ideas for me, other people's decisions being made for me. I just felt if I just didn't get away from here, I'd explode. I knew I would rather fail and die than live the life that people imagined that I had to live. But I had no solution. I needed a solution. I needed one that was desperate and dramatic. And I was willing to take a, a big risk for it. But I just didn't know what that solution would be. One night, I got up phone call from a friend of mine accusing me that I had talked to the police about a burglary that they suspected that he had committed. As the police would routinely pull me out of class and they questioned me about my activities and certainly the activities of my friends. So I went over to his house and standing at the front door I can see him standing in the dark on the other side of the screen. He came forward and he walked out on the porch. And I could see immediately that he was really high on dope. His head drooped, his torpor demeanor and his hollow eyes looking at me. Standing up close to me on the porch, he quickly produced a switchblade knife which found its way to my throat. I felt the pressure of the sharp edge pressing on my skin. Oh my God, I thought, you know, he's going to cut me. Staring face to face with my accuser, I could see the blazed, rugged dead look in his eyes. As we stood there, I, I thought I had three choices. I could turn quickly and run, get out of there. But where would I go? I could struggle with him, but I, the knife being where it was wasn't going to be very smart. Or I could just stand there and call his bluff. And that's what I chose to do. We just stood inches apart from each other, looking into each other's faces, and I waited for him to, to, to either drop the knife or to cut me with it. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happened with that knife. Bob McClellan, the McClellan Files, we told you it would be a voice you'd want to hear and that you'd want to get to know. His story, here on Our American Story.
And we continue with the McClellan Files. And we left off with a knife at the throat of Bob. We just stood inches apart from each other, looking into each other's faces. And I waited for him to, to, to either drop the knife or to cut me with it. Then, a big laugh. He dropped the knife and threw his arms around me, laughing hysterically. And then from out of these bushes ran my friends, laughing too, about how scared I was. It was all a joke. And after that, we all went out drinking and told the story over and over again about how scared I was. So this spring, I realized I was at the end of the road. I had no idea if I was even going to graduate. Teachers in my high school were no longer willing to accept me as a student. I mean, my journalism teacher told me when she ejected me out of her class permanently, she said, you know, McClellan, you're the kind of kid that will either grow up to be the president of a large corporation or a lifer in a state penitentiary. My algebra teacher surprised me by giving me a D after earning three Fs and a D for the year. When I thanked him and asked him why he did it, he said he was the only math teacher in the school and he never wanted me back in his class again. Yeah, I definitely needed to get away. I didn't know where to go, but I knew what I was running from. And that's what drew me to the decision to enlist in the Marines. Enlisting in the Marines for three years would be my solution. With the war in Vietnam picking up a massive influx of Marines would travel back and forth through Camp Pendleton. A discharge in California would make me a resident, allowing me to attend junior college and then transfer maybe to a four-year school. All that was necessary now were the signatures of my parents. After that, it was just one flight. I'd be gone. My father sat across the kitchen table from me smoking a cigarette. Arrayed before him on the table was his bottle of beer, a glass, an ashtray, and his cigarettes. He wore his usual uniform around the house, which consisted of his blue bathrobe covering a t-shirt and boxers. We sat there in silence while I watched him brood over something on his mind until finally I just had to come out and I said, Dad, I've decided to join the Marines. Without any reaction or expression, he just lifted his heavy head and he says, Oh, you have, huh? And how are you going to do that? You're only 17. Aren't you going to need my signature? I produced the papers he needed to sign, and he ignored them. Then he announced he was not going to sign them. I was stunned. I mean, I stood there. I couldn't believe it. he wouldn't sign the papers. I asked him why not, and he looked at me and he said, You know, I spent 22 years in the Marine Corps fighting in jungles in the freezing cold in Korea. And I didn't do that so that my son could go get his ass shot off in some jungle in Southeast Asia. The answer is no, I will not sign them. By the way, did you tell your mother? I told him I did, and she said she would sign them. He nodded his head slightly and said, that's no surprise. The answer is still no. I started to plead with him. I tried to make him recognize I had no future in this town. I wasn't going to tell him about all the problems I had. I just was trying to let him know I needed to leave. I didn't want to be sitting on a corner waiting for the draft. So he asked me, he said, well, why don't you join the Navy? That was always his favorite comment. Yeah, nice life, clean sheets, three meals a day, a little safer there. 
Jesus Christ, Dad, I, I can't go in the Navy. I said, I grew up in the Marine Corps. Finally, I just said, look, I'll be 18 in four months. Either you sign them now or I'll do it without your permission. I won't need you then. So he sat back there in his chair thinking about something and then told me to sit down. All right, he said. I'll sign them on one condition, but you have to promise me three things. And with his fingers, he counted them one by one. One, you will stand in the back. Two, you will keep your big mouth shut. Three, you will never volunteer. If they need 50 men to go fight, they'll get hundreds jumping to go. Remember, you're not in college. You're in the Marines. They'll get all the volunteers they need. If they send you, then you go and you do what you're told. Keep your head down, follow your orders. If you promise me that, I'll sign them. He paused for a minute thinking over the news I'd given him, and when he continued, his voice got soft, his face softened, and he talked with me more about my decision and what was ahead for me. It was truly a father and son conversation. I, I could not recall having one like this with him before. I drew strength and love from his words, though. He understood how I felt and the necessity to leave, but he also understood the fatal reality of war, and in particular, of being a Marine in one. His son was leaving for war, and in his advice, he revealed his concern for me. He had to make sure he gave me what he felt I needed to know to improve my chances of coming home. He looked me directly in the eyes and with his forefinger pointing at me for emphasis, he said, When you get down there, those DIs are going to do things and say things that are not going to make any sense to you at all. Just remember, Marine Corps has been around for a long time, and they have a reason for everything they do. And just because you don't understand what that reason is, doesn't mean one doesn't exist. Your understanding is neither necessary or important. Just do what you were told. Over time, as you get older, you'll begin to understand what those reasons were. Pay attention to the exams you take and the training you get. They will help determine your assignment and perhaps keep you alive. Remember, they always need more men in the rear than they do at the front. In the meantime, remember, your understanding is not important, so just follow your orders. Your job will be to react and not think. Thinking takes time, time in which Marines may die. Your job is to react, to follow your orders. Hopefully you'll come back okay. Coming home is the most important outcome of a war. I did, and that's how you got here. On August 22, 1966, I walked down the jetway onto the plane that was taking me to San Diego. Sitting in my seat, I thought I was strapped down inside a shell casing with wings. In minutes, we shot up into the air, and as Portland receded in the distance, I nervously felt that I had no idea of what was ahead of me, but I definitely knew what I was leaving behind. Years later, I read a play by William Shakespeare. At the opening, Petruchio is riding into town and is greeted by a friend who says, Oh, hail Petruchio! What winds blow thee to Padua? And he answered, Such winds that scatter young men through the world to seek their fortunes farther from home 
where small experience grows. When I read it, I recognized it as the summation of how I live my life. And like we told you, a natural storyteller. And by the way, this country is filled with them. And Bob is a terrific writer. But he's not a famous writer. He's not a guy who makes his living writing. He's not a guy who's writing for Vanity Fair or any of the places that people make a living writing. But we feature the stories and the voices of ordinary Americans who have extraordinary voices and talents. And this is a writing talent. And what a father-son story we heard right here. Follow your orders. Your job is to react, not think. Thinking takes time, the dad says. And coming home is the most important outcome of the war. I did. That's how you got here. By the way, you can hear a dad saying those words, right? You can hear it. You can hear the voices and the authenticity in this story. And we're talking about Bob McClellan. And the McClellan Files is what we're featuring here. And we'd love to hear your stories, your files. uh, Because we'd love to feature a few of you regularly. We know you're out there. You can write. You've got stories to tell, real ones. Not one some screenwriter sitting up in a hovel trying to dream up. And then find some actors to pretend to play those not real fake stories. So if you have a story, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Post them. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Send them to us. And then we'll have you record them. And then we'll play them, because that's all we did here. And my goodness, Bob's got a bunch more. We can't wait to share them with you. Again, the McClellan Files, and it's Bob McClellan. And I met him when I was on the road, met him in a hotel. We went outside, started to talk for an hour. And the next thing you know, I didn't want to leave, and I had to catch a plane, and it was four hours later. And we've all met people like that, haven't we? And we want to bring them to you all over this great country. There were Bob McClellans with beautiful stories, real stories. Bob's story, his dad's story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we love to talk about music on this show as you know hope you do too I hope you love hearing what we talk about and we also love this day in history stories we like to bring as many as we can every day and well this segment we love because it combines both on this day in history in 1932 a man whose music you all know died He was an American and a music man, and like music, existed in time, and that time was a long time ago. 
a time where no one thought to complain that baseball, the national game, was slow. It was a time when America dared to believe in itself. He gave it all his gifts. He was John Philip Sousa. It all began in the capital city of Washington, D.C., where John Philip Sousa was born the first son and the third child of ten children on November 6, 1854. Sousa's father served in the Marine Band for nearly 25 years. If Thomas Jefferson established the Marine Band, it was John Philip Sousa who made it a musical organization of the first rank. Sousa's personal musical genius showed itself early. Sousa's teacher was incredibly demanding and apparently no child psychologist. When the boy showed him his first composition, the teacher humiliated Sousa by hurling it away and announcing it as bread and cheese music. Sousa was eight years old. After suffering further indignities over the next two years, the boy finally one day almost used his fists on the teacher and declared that he was giving up music. Sousa's father, a wise man, said, all right, and got the boy a job in an all-night bakery while he continued regular school all day. After two nights, young Sousa was totally exhausted. The father then negotiated terms between his son and the music teacher, and Sousa's musical gifts evolved in peace. When Sousa was 13, he secretly agreed to accept the offer of a circus band leader to leave home and travel with the Big Top Band. But Sousa's father, who had gotten wind of the plan, arranged something even more exciting to the youngster's imagination. The morning Sousa was to join the circus, his father brought him instead to the Marine Barracks and enlisted the boy in the Corps and the Marine Band. But by age 20, Sousa had given up the security of the Marine Corps and set out to make his own way in the world. In September 1880, the opportunity came that would lead Sousa to his distant place in the American Pantheon. He was invited to re-enlist and take over as the leader of the Marine Band. The band made its debut at the White House on New Year's Day, 1881. His great marches that would establish his renown forever were captivating the nation. Among them, the wonderful Washington Post March. He composed the great march inspired by and named for the Marine Corps model Semper Fidelis, a Latin phrase that means always faithful. Then an enterprising promoter named David Blakely convinced Sousa to leave the Marines and go on tour with his own Sousa band. Blakely assumed financial risk and guaranteed a salary of four times over what he had been making. The band succeeded beyond Blakely's wildest expectations and lasted for 39 years. He had an uncanny knack for pleasing and surprising audiences everywhere. His range was astonishing. He was presenting music from Richard Wagner ten years before it was performed at the Metropolitan Opera, and because he knew the people wanted it, added jazz to the repertoire as well. He didn't care much for jazz, calling it music that made you want to go home and bite your grandmother. Sousa insisted that his sopranos had to be gifted, but they also had to be pretty. His instrumental soloists were superb, but they also had to be crowd-pleasers. He drove himself to the point of physical exhaustion, and in later years, when everyone believed he had every right to slow down, he said, 
When you hear of Sousa retiring, you will hear of Sousa dead. Between the band's success and the royalties on his compositions, Sousa soon became a millionaire. In 1910 and 11, Sousa's band made a tour of the world, but a few years later the world itself was not so harmonious. When the United States entered World War I, Sousa immediately wanted to serve. He was by then 62 years old. Still, it was arranged for him to join the Navy as a lieutenant. To feel closer to these young men, Sousa shaved his iconic beard and joked, this caused Germany to sue for peace since it made the Kaiser realize that no nation willing to meet such sacrifices could be beaten. By the 20s, Sousa had become a national asset, an institution, his birthdays bordering on becoming national holidays. Here's Sousa on his 75th birthday. I don't know whether I'm worthy of such an honor, but I'm going to accept it just the same. It isn't everyone that can get a cake on his 75th birthday. Sousa worked tirelessly for the rights of professional musicians. He, along with Victor Herbert, had helped to gain copyright recognition for music used in piano rolls and phonograph recordings, and later on, radio. He coined the phrase canned music and was the founding member of ASCAP, the first organization to protect rights and collect royalties for composers, authors, and publishers from all uses of their music. On March 6, 1932, Sousa died unexpectedly in his room in the Abraham Lincoln Hotel from a heart attack. He was eight months short of his 78th birthday. He had been right about how the world would hear of his retirement. John Phillips was dead and is buried at Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. The Marine Band commemorates Sousa's birthday every year with a ceremony at his grave. He wrote Taps, and with it, an anthem for America. He wrote it, he said, on shipboard one night standing by the railing, looking out over the ocean as he was returning from Europe to America, with divine inspiration, he said. It came to him, totally note for note, not one of which had to be changed when finally he set it down on paper. Fittingly, the last piece he conducted the night before he died, and probably the best words I can say, is the stars and stripes forever. John Philip Sousa, This Day in History. And what a story. 62 years old, and he wants to join the Navy. Wow. You talk about loving your country. This is why I hate it when people mock people who love their country like that. You can choose not to love your country, but don't make fun of people who do. And my goodness... Talk about stepping up. Also founder of ASCAP, the writer of this music that now is just classical American music. And all of it today brought to you by the folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to go to learn everything about American history, about life, about philosophy, about the arts. And of course, always sports. You'll play it if your child goes there, if you go there. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, if you went to college and never felt like you learned enough, if you didn't go to college and want to learn some more, Go to hillsdale.edu, that's hillsdale.edu, and check out their great online courses. The C.S. Lewis course is a must. In Economics 101, I just loved it. And my favorite, the Constitution 101, 
I learned more taking that class than I did in three years of law school at the University of Virginia about my own country. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we love talking sports here on our show and today we bring you the story of Chris Everett one of the best female tennis players to ever pick up a racket she was born on December 21st 1954 and we are going to hear from Chris herself and Faith brings us the story all of the players that I played were in tears on the court Frankie Durr was a wreck you know and and Leslie Hunt was was really pissed off. <laughs> I don't think we wanted to see anybody who was 16 years old outshine us. Part of the reason they resented her was when she was 16, she was, uh, you know, a, a little snippy. She didn't smile too much. She had her nose a tiny bit in the air then. All these other women are saying, why should we let this amateur play? She beats us and then she doesn't even take the prize money that we won. I think what Chris was kind of representing to us, that she could set us backwards if she won. See, if an amateur won and we just started the tour, what does that say about our tour? So it was, it was just difficult. I'm feeling all these emotions in the locker room. I'm thinking, they hate me. They're snubbing me. I was very intimidated by them. We had a meeting during the Open, and I said, we have to stop this. She's the greatest thing that's happened to women's tennis. She's going to be our next superstar. Those were some of the voices of the best female professional tennis players ever. But at the beginning of a tennis tour in North Carolina in the early 1970s, little Chrissy... Chris Everett, made her big debut. As a 15-year-old, she defeated reigning U.S. Open champion Margaret Court at this tournament. Everyone was stunned. She was so young and yet beginning to outshine those that had been competing as professionals for years. It was slightly embarrassing to say the least. But the mature ones, the professionals, who truly loved tennis grew to understand what she would do for the sport and for all female athletes. Little Chrissy Everett soon became known as Cinderella in sneakers and Little Miss Sunshine. At the young age of five, her father Jimmy Everett, a professional tennis player himself, began tennis lessons. Her dad made it fun for her. He wanted his daughter to have a hobby that she enjoyed. Everett told ESPN he'd say, okay, 10 over the net and I'll buy you a Coke. But, of course, no matter how encouraging a parent is, a child still wants to make their parent proud. You know, I think a lot of it is, is uh, wanting approval. Um, I know I, I played tennis for a long time for my father. You know, he was my coach and my inspiration, and I wanted to please him. 
not that I didn't enjoy it, I did enjoy it, but for a long time when I was a kid, you find an adult that uh, is willing to sacrifice a lot for that child and is their greatest supporter and hopefully they don't draw they don't cross the line into putting too much pressure on the kid I mean my dad never got mad at me when I lost a match let's put it that way so that that made me love him even more and want to do even better for him but it's also it's it's just a need inside and I'm not quite sure uh, I'm not quite sure it's a good thing it's a normal thing but it's that it's that hunger that need uh, you know to I guess to excel in one thing the fact that her dad never got mad at her when she lost was essential to her striving. And by the age of 10, she had started playing junior tennis. And by the age of 11, she was nationally ranked. By 1969, she was ranked number one in the U.S. for girls under 14. Because I played in the juniors, and it's not like all of a sudden at 18 I hit the pro circuit without any experience behind me or any hope. What happened was, you know, I started playing junior tennis when I was 10 years old, and when I was 11 or 12, I started winning 12 and under tournaments. When I was 14, I always was the best in my age group. And that sort of, that confidence builds. And then when you join the Pro Tour, when I joined the Pro Tour, my first pro match was when I was, I think when I was 13. I went three sets with a woman who was like number three in the country. When she was 13. Now, having your father as a coach is not something everyone can do. But she so admired and loved her father, it came easy. In fact, after winning Wimbledon at the age of 19, he was the first person she called. When the phone finally did ring, I heard this little voice at the other end of the line saying, I won. With that, I got all choked up and I couldn't speak. And the next thing I heard was, Dad, are you all right? <laughs> but can you imagine your 19-year-old daughter calling you from England and saying, hey, Dad, I just won Wimbledon. Every time I think about it, it still brings tears to my eyes. Chris became a pro at the age of 18 in 1971. She was ranked either number one or number two in the world from 1975 to 1986. That's a total of 260 weeks. Everett was also named the Associated Press Female Athlete of the Year four times. In 1974, 75, 77, and 1980. Now, Chris, she was different than her other competitors. Amidst the sass and mental breakdowns of many athletes of that age, Chrissy Everett kept her cool. So cool, in fact, that she was crowned Little Miss Icicle, or the Ice Maiden. Her competitors would flip off refs, throw towels, and throw fits. But not Chris. Full of grace and femininity, she played tennis as a lady. Not only that, but she was small and dainty. And not as strong as many other female athletes. Here she explains how her father helped her. My father, at a very young age, uh, had instilled in me, do not let your opponent see your emotions and see how you're feeling, because they'll use that fear. If they see a temper, they'll say, aha. So I was, that's why I was very the ice maiden and I think that frustrated a lot of opponents because they were trying to figure out you know what I was feeling and the other thing was I I am not of the mold of a Jimmy Connors or a Billie Jean King in the sense that you know I, I didn't feel like a star out there I didn't feel like I had to entertain the crowds and and show my personality I was more I was a very introverted person. Everett went on from there to win 18 major championships that's the third greatest in women's history of tennis 
Her main rival, Martina Navratilova, was her complete opposite. A bulky and intimidating Czechoslovakian, this rivalry is one that has gone down in history. 80 matches, 60 finals, 14 Grand Slams over 16 years with these two champions was epic. From 1975 to 1986, one of them was the number one. Without one another, they would never have become the athletes that they did. They would make each other cry practically every other weekend. Of course, with this rivalry and how early Chris started playing, there was some mounting pressure. She had shot out of the gates with such power and ability that people expected much of her. And Martina had gotten really good. Well, I'll tell you, Martina, after she took over number one, she beat me 13 times in a row, and I was a mental case. After a while, it was when I walked down the court, I was beaten. It's like, I'm going to lose this match, you know? But that was 13 times in a row. Then the 14th time I beat her in a tournament in Florida, then the 15th time was, well, it's not the 15th, but the, the second time after that was the French Open when I did beat her. Fear of losing drove me. I mean, it was not the thrill of winning. It was, but maybe because I, I had been number one for some time and I knew everybody was gunning for me. So after a while, I was playing not to lose. Chris was the first male or female tennis player to win 1,000 single matches and compiled the second most career match wins of 1,309. Everett retired after 17 years, having won 92% of her matches. An astounding number. Best in history, male or female. For one 13-year run, she won at least one Grand Slam title. But with all of these accomplishments, it wasn't until she had a child of her own that she found more meaning in her life. I tell you what, winning Wimbledon was the greatest experience for about a day or two. I mean, you're on a high. It doesn't carry over. I mean, the next month you're on to St. Louis playing a tournament. You're not riding on that exhilaration. Having a child for me is joy 24 hours of the day. You know, I love, I mean, I, I, I found my niche. I feel like I'm a mother, you know, and I feel like I'm a, a I really enjoy being a mother. And even with the blessing and love of her children, she knows that even they will not always be with her. Here's Chris Evert, one of the most successful athletes of all time, sharing some of the deepest and most vulnerable reflections of her life. My, I feel like there's a, there's a niche that I haven't quite found. And it could be a spiritual niche. I, I'm not quite sure. I can't pinpoint what it is, but I'm not... You know, I've, I've, there's something else out there for me that's, that's going to take place, you know, when my kids are in school and, and I'm going to look around and, and see, hey, you know, I've got all this free time on my hands. What is important to me? What really, what do I want to do? Billie Jean and I have talked a lot about that because she's, she turned 50 last year and she's uh, all of a sudden the last year to really, it's hit her, you know, the spiritual, you know, she's really evolving and, and very happy and at peace with herself. and. And uh, I think it takes a long time to find that. I think it takes a long time, whether you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. And I haven't, I haven't quite pinpointed it and found it yet. You know, because I've been a tennis player, I've been a wife, I've been a mom. But I know there's something else for Chris. This is Faith Garcia reporting to you from Our American Stories. And thanks as always for that, Faith. And 
Faith also did a terrific piece on Babe Didrichsen Zaharias. And you can hear that and all of our storytelling at OurAmericanNetwork.org. I was a huge Chris Everett fan. My brother was a serious tennis player. I got to see her at the U.S. Open back when it was at Queens and it was grass tennis. And one of the pleasures of my life seeing her. What a polite lady. And my goodness, the ice queen, you bet. Nothing. Nothing. She showed nothing. The great champion, a mom, and a searcher. Chris Everett's story. Here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 